Today, we're going to start the session with a conversation with Dan Roselli, founder and managing partner of CFV Ventures. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, let's get acquainted. Let's get you introduced to our audience. Tell us a bit about your background and also let's introduce the firm, CFB Ventures, your focus, et cetera. Yeah, that's great. Um, I kind of break my uh, career into three components. The first one was big company marketing. So uh, General Mills, Colgate, Palmolive, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I ended up in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where I am, because uh, Bank of America recruited me to be their brand and advertising executive. So I ran brand strategy and Marcom for BVA globally and was a member of the management operating committee of the bank. Um, left that at around 2000, end of 2003, beginning of 2004, <clears throat> and became an entrepreneur because I wanted to stay in Charlotte. Uh, I helped co-found one of Charlotte's FinTech unicorns, a company called Red Ventures. Uh, Charlotte has actually produced four FinTech unicorns. And most people around the world may not know that. They know us as a big banking town but they don't know us for some of the work in the fintech um, area. Uh, I was an entrepreneur for about 10 years, um, put three different companies uh, uh, on the Inc. 500 list. Um, lots of entrepreneurs know about that. Uh, it's a U.S.-based study, but fastest-growing based U.S. private companies, you have to have a four-year track record to do it. So not that many people have, have done that. So I had this interesting combination of big company operating experience and kind of entrepreneurial street credibility. And that takes us to about 10 years ago in what I call the third phase of my career, which is I focus uh, now on community building and helping entrepreneurs. Uh, we did a crazy thing in the last Great Recession uh, and bought an empty downtown office building in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, with the idea of turning it into an entrepreneurship center. Uh, and that's called Packard Place. Uh, it's still one of the largest tech and innovation centers anywhere in the U.S. and really was one of the first ones outside of New York and San Francisco in the U.S. Um, our alumni raised over $2 billion in venture capital, created over 1,000 jobs in the Charlotte region, so just hugely uh, transformative for the Charlotte area. And then from that mm -hmm. point, we started doing acceleration work in fintech, insurtech, and health tech. And then uh, we also started a fund uh, specific to the fintech and insurtech space, which is what we're here to talk about today, the CFB uh, fintech fund. So as you can tell, I've had a, a busy decade here in Charlotte. Fantastic. That's the kind of thing places like Charlotte meet. So congratulations on your leadership. So tell us a bit about the fund. How big is it? You've already said it's fintech and insurtech focus. What's, uh, what scale are we talking? That's right. It's a, it's a modest fund. Uh, it's just around $7 million for our first fund, uh, primarily because we're investing in an early stage. <clears throat> um, our investment criteria, uh, we normally participate in seed rounds that are 750 to a million in a total round. We like to be two to 300 of that round. Um, so pretty early stage and therefore we don't need a huge fund to have the impact that we want on the number of companies. Uh, and we do have a preference for companies that have come through our accelerator program. Um, that's the Queen City FinTech Accelerator and the Queen City InsurTech Accelerator. I should note uh, Charlotte's nickname is the Queen City because we were named after Queen Charlotte 200 years ago. Uh, so the QC FinTech and QC InsurTech program. So a lot of our funding goes there, partly because we believe we don't just want to be money. We don't want to just be a check. We really believe we're bringing an ecosystem of resources and support uh, to the table, and money is just part of that equation. And what, um, what does a company need to have by way of proof point to qualify for your 
funding? Sure. So um, at a seed stage funding, right, if um, I'll start by saying kind of what's next and then working backwards. In the United States, at least, and I think this is pretty true globally, Series A investors want to see about um, $100,000 in monthly reoccurring revenue. If you're a direct-to-consumer business, they probably want to see 20,000, 30,000 clients. If you're a B2B business, they probably want to see you have two dozen clients, right? So that's where we're trying to get companies to. Um, so we invest in the stage where they are certainly post-launch and post-revenue and probably have some early signs of marketplace fit and adoption. Um, so we're not totally um, banking on speculative entrepreneurs. We're not banking on people with ideas. We're not an angel fund, right? We want to see a product in place. We want to see a founding team in place. And we want to see some early marketplace validation that, yes, you are actually solving the problem you think you are, and that some people are willing to buy it. Now, lots of times that will change, but that's what we're looking for in terms of stage. Um, revenue still probably small, probably under 100,000 in revenue. So uh, if you are trying to get these companies to the Series A, of, which means in, in the event it's a SaaS company that's a 100,000 MRR, what is your MRR threshold? 10K, 15K, what, what is your comfort level? Yeah, we, we don't have a hard threshold, but I would say we would like to see, you know, five um, in, in ARR. Um, and even at that point, so low, I'm not even sure we could call it uh, ARR on a monthly basis. But I, like I said, we would love to see, even if it's 50,000 in annual revenue, like and, and most likely because they're young companies, <clears throat> that will be over a course of, uh, you know, a couple of months. So if they had 50,000 in revenue over a quarter, uh, but had some people that were able to be case studies for them, uh, endorsers and references, that would probably suffice. There are times okay. where we look at companies that are pre-revenue, but it's it's rare. Good. All right. So let's talk about some of the companies uh, that you've invested in and um, give us a sense of what are they doing, what are the business models, and what what trends are you seeing in fintech? It seems like since this is your sweet spot, you have, I'm sure, a good thesis, investment thesis around fintech and insurtech. So. I would love to pick your brains on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you asked a bunch of questions there. Let me start with talking about some of the alumni. Um, we have always had a philosophy of creating a really wide tent within FinTech and InsurTech. Um, we believe that by being specific in those verticals, that was already specific enough, and then we wanted to be as wide within those verticals as we could be. So yeah. FinTech for us could be everything from cybersecurity uh, to AI, to blockchain technologies, to P2P lending, right? We really go the full gambit, and we think that allows us to get the best companies and the best entrepreneurs. Um, some notable alumni companies, uh, one of our, it's always hard to pick your favorite children, right? So if somebody I don't mention on this is gonna, is gonna email me afterwards and go, how come you didn't give us a shout out? But our portfolio is about 80 companies because we're, we're at a pretty earlier stage. Uh, one of my favorites is a company called Trust Stamp out of Atlanta. Uh, they do work on biometric verification of consumers. Uh, they've actually announced uh, that their intentions are to go public on the uh, Ireland Stock Exchange later this year. So that would be our first IPO, which would be exciting. Uh, we had a company that's actually based in the Charlotte region, Catapult, uh, that manages uh, RFP processes for, um, for companies. And we think that uh, marketplace in the RFP uh, is even something we define as FinTech. They just did a major raise and a markup in their valuation. Uh, another company called Amicus that deals in DAFs, donor advised funds. 
um, and uh, has just landed uh, an opportunity with a major, you know, top 10 global bank. Uh, excited for that announcements that are that are coming up. So you can see even from those three examples, the spectrum of things within the fintech uh, uh, space we look at. Uh, in insurtech, it's equally broad. We look at everything from carrier um, uh, innovation uh, to back office innovation to claims. There is a whole bunch of work being done on claims automation. Uh, one of our companies in our last uh, cohort weather uh, check um, is actually using um, data and AI on a microclimate basis to understand potential weather damage uh, to expedite uh, claims processing for damage from weather-related uh, issues in the U.S., right? Just fantastic technology saving insurance companies, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in inefficient claims processes. So I could talk all day about that, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of a flavor uh, for the alumni base. Um, you Can also asked about... Sorry, go ahead. Give us a sense of the trends in those two sectors. Absolutely. Uh, and so uh, the biggest trends um, tend to be around um, uh, AI, machine learning, um, and that uh, automation space. Um, I know those are a bit of buzzwords, so I even hesitate to, to use them. But this idea of creating efficiencies um, through uh, the ability uh, with machine learning um, to make processes more efficient. These organizations that the FinTech and SureTech companies, founders that we work with, are trying to work with are such huge organizations that even a, a small increase in an efficiency in a process has huge yield to it downstream because they're just so massive as organizations. So we see, well, that's not particularly sexy, the efficiency play on an institutional level for financial and insurance companies uh, may not get people totally excited, uh, but it's big money. And there's some, some really good companies uh, in that space. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that uh, I just did a conference uh, or an event last week on blockchain. Um, and I believe that I showed the technology curve um, uh, in that session where, you know, in, especially in the US, and I think this is true globally, you get this innovation hype and then you get this, this um, hangover effect where things get overhyped, and then the reality starts creeping up, right? You could put self-driving cars in this category, which everyone expected there to be self-driving cars, and now they're not, and then all of a sudden there are going to be self-driving cars. I put blockchain in that same technology curve, which is got really overhyped, people use it as a buzzword, people really didn't know how to use it or what it was gonna be used for, and so for the last year we've been in this hangover from the blockchain uh, buzz, but now we're starting to see some really core interesting technologies using um, immutable ledgers uh, and how that can work to make processes from lending to claims more efficient. So I think you're going to hear more about that um, coming back still. Very good. All right. And um, now what is your you know, modus operandi? You have a small fund. Are you looking for unicorns? Are you looking for early exits? How do you think of, you know, the Yeah, certainly. The well, well, clearly all of our portfolios will be unicorns someday, right? <laughs> um, we, uh, we know as an early stage investor uh, that uh, we will still have a, a relatively high failure rate of companies. Uh, if you look at the failure rate of um, companies in general, um, at the early stage investing, you get less of that in the Series B stage, where the companies are viable. It's a question of how big are they going to get. But at the, the, the seed stage, you're still trying to figure out is this company going to make it. Um, 
And so we think for us, and because we're investing in valuations that are $3 million, $5 million, $8 million, uh, a company that gets to $80 million um, is an interesting exit for us, right? It doesn't have to be a billion-dollar valuation. It needs to be a billion-dollar valuation when you're putting in $50 million at a Series B when the company's already valued at, you know, $100 million. That's where you need to get to unicorn status. Could some of ours grow up to be on that path? Sure. I mean, having co-founded one, I know what that trajectory looks like. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily our goal. Um, the other thing that I would say is I think we'll have a myriad of exit uh, possibilities. I mentioned one of our companies. Uh, we're going to have our first IPO, which, you know, went out of fashion for a decade and is now kind of coming back into fashion as startup exit modes. Uh, we think the more likely path for most of our companies are going to be strategic exits to a company that's going to want to buy and bolt on this technology, service, user interface, um, uh, AI learning they have behind the scenes. And we think that'll be a very common exit path, much more common than kind of unicorn status and you know, Series D rounds at a billion-dollar valuation. Then what is um, the geographical footprint of the companies that you invest in? Because you said your preference is for people coming out of your accelerator, but then you also give examples of companies from Atlanta. So it sounds like you are not completely constrained to the just the North Carolina companies. Certainly not. Um, I think we do focus in um, the U.S. and Canada. We happen to be based in Charlotte, North Carolina, but we don't focus on, on Charlotte or the Carolinas. Um, we will get companies that come through because we're a hometown team, but, uh, but, but really our, our perspective has been global in nature. Um, we uh, have had applicants, we're out recruiting for Class 13 right now, so that's one thing I should mention to all your listeners. Uh, applications are open for another uh, until I think August uh, 1st. Uh, and so if you want to apply to Class 13 of the UC FinTech or InsurTech program, please check out the website. Um, and we get people from all over. So I think over time, in recruiting 12 classes, we've had companies from um, every continent except Antarctica, um, you know, 100 different countries, um, almost every state in the United States, and so really wide geography. That comes from the fact that we focused it on a couple of verticals, starting in FinTech and then InsurTech and now HealthTech. Um, because we thought we had an ecosystem that could support that. When we started the program, we said, you know, what areas can we compete in, sitting in Charlotte, North Carolina, that we can compete on and win on a national and international level? That was part of our thinking of why we chose to be vertically specific. And as soon as we started doing the FinTech program, we got applicants from all over the world. And I'll never forget eight, nine years ago, the first time we got a company from New York and San Francisco to move to Charlotte to incubate their FinTech startup, how much that changed the mindset of what was possible. Um, and that was just as this movement in the United States about being in um, um, traditionally kind of underserved marketplaces, primarily outside New York and San Francisco, um, how much that the rest of the country has to offer cost of living, quality of life, valuations. And so we've really um, driven um, um, behind that tailwind. The last thing I'll mention is international because it's important. We get a lot of international companies applying to our program because they want access to the U.S. marketplace. And so we've actually created a whole other program across those verticals called the International Landing Pad, with the idea that people can come in, make Charlotte their North American home base, and we can help them access the U.S. and Canadian marketplace. We think much more cost-effectively in New York, much more connected, uh, less expensive than San Francisco. Um, so we will look at companies that are coming through, through that program as well. 
Yeah, I, I'm completely uh, in agreement with you that uh, the, the trend is very much in that direction. I think it's going to be uh, companies are not going to be doing their, you know, entrepreneurial work in expensive places like New York and San Francisco or the Bay Area. At least maybe they'll have one or two people and then the, the real bulk of the operation is going to be somewhere else and, and that's that's definitely going to be, has been actually, I mean, part of the uh, success of our program has also been because of this global nature of entrepreneurship and in the last couple of decades, the movement has been towards global, especially in the last decade, the movement has very much been in a global direction. So yeah, absolutely. I, I remember 10 years ago, if, uh, if a startup in Charlotte had gotten uh, Series A funding from a venture firm in New York or San Francisco, it was almost certainly a requirement that they had to move to that geographic location. And now, 10 years later, uh, VCs in New York and San Francisco are saying, absolutely don't move, stay, stay where you are. We love that cost of living. We love the value uh, and the impact of our investment in Omaha, Charlotte, Jacksonville, Nashville, right? So uh, we're seeing that yeah. truth happening. And same on the international stage. Yeah, and this decade, this upcoming decade for many reasons, including COVID is going to accentuate that trend big time. Uh, totally 